book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. The text is printed for you in the bulletin, but if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to use them. And I will try to give just a slightly longer introduction today to give you time to find the book of Haggai. It's one of those books in the Bible that I think it actually takes longer to find the book of Haggai than to read the book of Haggai. I, I timed myself on this this morning. I just read it straight through, and it took me three minutes and four seconds. So, you know, if you have ten minutes to do something this week, you can read it three times. Or, or you could just read it once, pray through it. Let me actually encourage you, if you have perhaps gotten out of the habit lately of spending regular time in the Word and reading your Bibles daily, use this week as an opportunity to get back into it. Haggai is an easy book to read. It's only two chapters. It's 38 verses total. So use this as your opportunity. Use this to get back into daily reading of the Word of God. Uh, together with hopefully the prayer initiative, have that booklet by your side and, and use that to know how to pray. The book of Haggai. <clears throat> like I said, it's a short book. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi is the end, and then you're into the New Testament. Uh, just, just look for that part of your Bible where all the pages are still really neat and clean and there's no markings in it yet. And Haggai is probably right around there somewhere. We're going to spend, I think, five weeks going through the book of Haggai. Spending some time in this uh, otherwise kind of dusty portion of the Old Testament. It's a, a very rich book for us. I think that the Lord could use this in a powerful way for our church to encourage us, to renew us, to lead us in the way everlasting. One thing that's unique about the book of Haggai is that with almost every book of the New Testament, a few exceptions, but with almost every book, we know generally when they were written. Many of the Old Testament books are dated to the, the reign of the king that the prophet prophesied during. So, so we know about when most books were written. With the book of Haggai, we know the exact days that Haggai prophesied on. There's, there's five different portions in Haggai. There's five different messages or oracles that he delivers. And each one is dated to the very day. And so this portion we're going to be reading this morning, he preached or he spoke on August 29th, 520 B.C. August 29th, 520 B.C. So just a little more than 2,500 years ago. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills. Bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray to the Lord one more time. Father, we come with thanksgiving for the word of the Lord that you have delivered to your church, to your people, even today. Father, we do ask that having read it now, will you give us insight? Will you open our eyes that we may truly see wonderful things from you spoken to us in this portion of your word? We ask that you will do this for the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, in my literature class, we used to talk about what it was that made something to be a classic piece of literature. A classic piece of literature. The term these days, it's so cheapened the way we use it. We talk about, you know, Tommy Boy was a classic movie from the 90s, right? Or, or Dumb and Dumber. I mean, that was a classic. It just doesn't get any better than some of these movies. But that's not, that's not exactly what we talked about in high school. In fact, one of the definitions that we used to say is that a, a classic piece of literature is something that is both very timely and it's also timeless. It has a timeliness to it and it has a timelessness to it. In other words, it was very appropriate for the time at which it was written. But it also is applicable to us today regardless of when it was written. So we come to a book of Haggai, which is over 2,500 years old. It was written halfway around the world to a very different culture in a very different time in a very different place. And we hear, you know, it talks about the second year of Darius the king. It talks about people like Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and it talks about the temple. And we recognize that, that there's a foreignness to this. This is different than our world today. And yet, what I think we'll see as we get into the book of Haggai is that it also has a, a timelessness to it. That the message of the book of Haggai, although it originates from a different time, is, is perfectly suited to us today. It speaks to us just as though it, it could have been written this week. This could have been written yesterday, and the message of it would be the same. And that's in part because although some of the details change and the context changes, nevertheless the character of God does not change. And human nature does not change. And so the, the message that God gave his people then still speaks to us today, 2,500 years later. It's just like reading Dickens or John Bunyan or Augustine. Some of these old, old saints, they were written hundreds of years ago in some cases. And yet you read them, and, and the reason we consider them classics is, is you read them and you say, gosh, this describes my situation perfectly. And so it is with the book of Haggai. I want to begin by giving us a little bit of the context of Haggai, because it is an Old Testament book and it is unfamiliar to many of us. And so if we're going to understand it, if we're going to get the most out of it, we have to begin with at least a little bit of context. We have to sort of review the big picture of the Old Testament story. And I want to start with King David. We'll try to be brief, but let me start with King David. He's a good spot to start, because if you can remember, the middle of David's reign was exactly 1,000 years before Christ. He reigned for 40 years. That midpoint was exactly 1,000 BC. And remember, David was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. These were good times for Israel, not completely without its problems, but but really, it was a golden age for the nation of Israel. The boundaries of the kingdom were expanding. The wealth of the nations was being brought in. Israel was thriving. These were good days for the nation of Israel during the reign of David. We remember his son, Solomon. The boundaries continued to expand during the reign of Solomon, and it continued to be a good time. We, 
We are well aware of some of the issues these men had, but it was still a good time in the life of the nation of Israel. Solomon also reigned for 40 years, and these were the high points. This is what, what Jews even today can look back at those times and say, this was the golden age in the life of Israel. This is what they looked to. But who came after Solomon? He had a son named Rehoboam. And almost immediately, when Rehoboam became king, the kingdom turned into chaos. Almost immediately, there was civil unrest, and there was strife, and there was civil war, and the kingdom was split into two. The kingdom of Israel, under King David, was unified, under Solomon was unified. After Solomon, it split into two, and you had a northern kingdom, and you had a southern kingdom. Just to review, the northern kingdom, which is often called the kingdom of Israel, had ten of the tribes. Remember, there were twelve tribes of Israel. Ten of them were in the northern kingdom. But they had consistently wicked kings who all practiced idolatry, who turned aside to other gods and led the nation in worshiping other gods. The kingdom of Israel, this northern kingdom, existed for around 200 years until 720 B.C., 720, when on the stage of world politics, God was raising up another nation, the nation of Assyria, and God would use that nation to come and they would uh, destroy the northern kingdom. They totally wiped them out. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17, the end of the northern kingdom in 720 B.C. But there was also the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was smaller. They only had two of the 12 tribes. They had the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, they had the tribe of Judah, which is important, because although they were smaller, remember, that's one of the important tribes. The genealogy that runs all the way from David to Jesus goes through the tribe of Judah. You remember the title of Jesus he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Judah. The southern kingdom also had the city of Jerusalem, which was important because it meant they had the temple, the one temple that was actually sanctioned by God as a place of worship and a place of sacrifice. The northern kingdom did not have access to that. The southern kingdom had a mixture. They had good kings and they had bad kings. They had some of both. They had many bad kings, but we remember there were some like the young king Josiah, he was a good king. It was during his reign that they found the book of the law in the temple. They dusted it off and they actually read it and they began to follow it. But despite it, there was still a general downward trend in the, in the southern kingdom until 587 B.C. I'm giving a lot of dates. Don't worry, there's not going to be a test on this later. But I want you to kind of get a big picture if you can in your mind. 587 B.C., 500 years almost after David. On the stage of world politics, a new nation is rising up, the nation of Babylon, and they had a strong young king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar came, and he sacked Jerusalem, and he defeated the kingdom of Judah. He conquered Judah, sacked Jerusalem, and he took the people into captivity. Remember, he took them into exile. Second Chronicles 36, we can read about this story. And, and what he did was he took the inhabitants of Jerusalem, roughly about 50,000 people, and he marched them from Jerusalem across the desert to Babylon. We remember the stories of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel in the fiery furnace. Working, he was in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Well, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who took them into Babylon. That's how Daniel got there. So 50,000 people marched 900 miles. Now, I, I tried to do some research to find out how to get our minds around 50,000 people. Burbank has about 100,000, so it's half of Burbank. Porter Ranch has about 50,000 people. That's the only sort of township around here I could find that had about 50,000 people. So if you just imagine kind of that part of the map, if you can picture it, 
everyone there is sacked, and they're all forcibly marched to Boise, Idaho. Do you have any idea how far Boise, Idaho is from here? Well, it's 900 miles from here. So, and some of it is desert, so you get a little bit of desert in there, but that's how far it is. Can you imagine walking that far? But we also have to remember that, that it's actually worse for them than that would be for us. I mean, if, if the Idahoans come and sack Los Angeles and they march 50,000 of us back to Boise to be their slaves, that would be a tragedy. Right? I mean, personally, economically, I mean, we like living here. That would be sad to leave. So that would be a tragedy. But it was much worse for the Israelites. It was much worse for them because remember why they lived in Jerusalem. Why did they live in the land of Israel? It's because it was the promised land. See, we live in L.A. because we like the opportunities that are here. Maybe we like the weather. Maybe we don't. But, but we choose to live here for personal reasons. They lived in Jerusalem because God had given it to them. It was theirs by divine right. The reason that was their land and not another land was because that was the promise of God. That was their land to dwell in forever. And so for someone else, one of these pagan nations now to come and to sack them, to defeat them in war and to march them into their land, this was not just a personal tragedy or a socioeconomic tragedy. There was some theological tragedy in here also that, that raised these questions. What is going on? How can God allow this to happen? If he has given us this by promise, how now does another nation that does not know the Lord, how do they come in and defeat us? What can this mean as far as God's thoughts about us and his feelings towards us? But what we remember is that the exile was not forever. Babylon was weakening. Nebuchadnezzar had sons who ruled after him, but none of them were as powerful as he was. And another nation was on the rise, the nation of Persia. And Persia, when they came, they defeat Babylon, and now they're king of the hill for a little while. And their king was King Cyrus, and he was a different type of man altogether. He was a gentler man, he had a different strategy, he had a different sort of foreign policy. And Cyrus allowed his nations that had been defeated to dwell in their own land. And so when Cyrus comes to power, he allows all of the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. And so this is about... Uh, 539 B.C., again, no, no quiz, but just remember, 539, he allows all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And now we're getting closer to the time of Haggai. We're not quite there yet. When they go back, 539, they go back to Jerusalem, and of course Jerusalem has been sacked. It's been burned. And so it's a disaster. They have to begin this now long process of the, of the restoration, of beginning to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The Old Testament tells us of three things that needed to be rebuilt they needed to rebuild the city, which Nehemiah tells us about. They needed to rebuild the people, which Ezra tells us about. And they needed to rebuild the temple, which Haggai and Zechariah tell us about. The temple, Solomon's grand temple that he had built, had been destroyed. It had been burned. Many of the things had been stolen from it. And so they get back, and they do exactly what you would expect them to do. They get to work. They start to rebuild. They, they're sweeping out the rubble. They're laying a new foundation for the temple. But after they've laid the foundation of the temple some opposition arises. You can read in Ezra 4 that some opposition arises to the temple rebuilding project. And so they quit. Some opposition arises and they just quit working on it. And they don't come back to it. And so now 15 years passes. 15 years passes and they never actually got back to it. And so what you have is a foundation with no temple on top. So 15 years later, of course, it's overgrown with weeds. It's become wild again. It's dusty and dirty. And they never got back to it. It's still just a heap of rubble. And now the people are just going about their own lives and their own business. 
And so there's, you know, settling in, personally restarting businesses, finding the nearest grocery store because they haven't lived there in a while. All the things you have to do when you go back to your city, they're doing, but the temple is being neglected. And 15 years later, think about how they feel now. That sense of urgency that they had when they first came back is totally gone. They've lost the sense of eagerness to be about the Lord's work, and instead they're just sort of settling in now to their comfortable, middle-class, Jerusalem, suburban lives of, of making a living and getting along. And so now this here is the world that Haggai comes into. This is the, the milieu of the people when the Lord raises up Haggai to be his prophet and to speak on his behalf. He comes after there's been 15 years of peace. 15 years of peace there's been you know, economically, socially, uh, politically, there's been peace, but this is what we know. Peace is not always a good thing spiritually. Economic, political peace is not always good spiritually, is it? Because, because this is the way it is, and I think you can relate. When things are difficult, when we're going through trials, most of us walk much more carefully. We walk much more circumspectly. We watch, walk much more thoughtfully with, with putting due thought into each of our actions, each of our purchases. We think about if things are tough. But when things are easy, we just get lazy. When there's peace, we don't think as carefully. And peace and safety can lead to spiritual inertia and apathy. And that's the world of the returned exiles now at the time of Haggai. And do you know that feeling? And maybe at some point in your life you've gone through a period of trial and suffering. Maybe your health was suffering. Maybe you had family problems and there was discord and disrespect. Maybe you had financial problems. And when those things happen, oftentimes, you know, we're just knocking down God's door in prayer. We're seeking him out. We're digging into the word like never before because there's an eagerness and urgency, urgency to, to discern what is God's feelings on this. What could God be up to with this trial in my life? Why is he allowing me, his child, to go through all this? And so there's a sense of urgency. But then when things improve and our, our health is good for a little while and we get a, a new job with financial blessings and the family situation smooths itself out, what happens? That sense of urgency, it just goes away. And oftentimes, spiritual life can actually suffer when, there, when times are good, when money comes in and everything's at peace. And so it's into that situation now that Haggai, the prophet, comes. Some people have said it was probably actually easier for some of the other prophets who were raised up during times of tribulation and suffering and war because at that time people are ready to listen to a prophet. People are, people are begging for a prophet to say, what does the Lord have to say to us? But Haggai comes at a time when no one is seeking the Lord. He comes at a time when no one is working on the Lord's business. In many ways, I imagine that Haggai came into a situation very much like the United States in 2013. We have peace in our country. There's issues here and there, but overall we have peace, we have prosperity, and no one is seeking the Lord. And Haggai comes at this time of apathy and spiritual coolness. And he is called to come and to speak the word of God. Now remember, prophets did two things. A lot of times when we think about prophets, the first thing that comes to mind is we think, a prophet tells the future. A prophet tells the future, and Haggai does a little bit of that occasionally. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, Haggai says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. So, so here he's doing it. He's saying this is what's going to happen in a little while. This is what the Lord is going to do. But that was actually the smaller task of the prophet. Much more regularly, a prophet was a lot like a preacher. 
A prophet was one who came and proclaimed the word of the Lord. And it didn't have to be anything new. It didn't have to be anything uh, you know, telling the future. Oftentimes, he would take them back to the word that they already had gotten, to, to bring them back to the book of the law and say, this is the word of the Lord for us. Haggai did a lot of that, calling people to the word of the Lord. Look at this. As we said, Haggai is only two chapters. It's 38 verses. But in those 38 verses, 26 times we hear the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. In 38 verses, 26 times we hear the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. Or some equivalent. You know, declares the Lord. Or this is the word of the Lord. Look at the verses that we read this morning. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the second year of Darius... In the sixth month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Verse 5, now therefore thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. And it goes on and on like this throughout the, the book. So much so that it, the book of Haggai ends at the end of chapter 2 with these words, declares the Lord of hosts. We could say that, that literally that is the last word in the book of Haggai. And I, and I think spiritually, metaphorically, that's the last word. That Haggai comes into this situation and he brings the word of God. What he brings for them is a word from the Lord. And I want us to see this, that here he comes into this situation of apathy and coolness where the people are not motivated to do the Lord's work, into this culture of, of sort of you know, me first, my comfort first, ignoring the work of the Lord. And what he comes with is, is not his own eloquence, not his own cleverness, not his own motivational powers to try to get everybody worked up and motivated and on the same page and go in the same direction. What he has is one thing. He comes with the word of God. He comes with the word of God to preach because only the word of the living God has the power to stir sleeping hearts. It is only the word of God that has the power to stir their sleeping hearts. And the obedience that God requires is not simply changed actions. It's a changed heart that leads to changed actions. And I think Haggai comes with this, this knowledge that, that what is required is something that's far beyond his ability. He cannot change a person's heart. Only God can change a person's heart. I remember many years ago, I was a, a summer camp counselor at a camp in Colorado, a summer camp, and uh, during our orientation week, we were attending some uh, classes, and, and one of the the directors of the camp was teaching us. And, and as she was preparing us for you know, what we were just certain was going to be a, a life-changing summer of, of having all these kids come through the camp and, and talking to them about God, but she began by telling us, you need to remember this summer, there are two things that can change a person, and you're not one of them. She meant, of course, God and his word. God and his word are the two things that had the power to change lives to remind us as we were going into that summer and as counselors, we needed to be reminded of that. And as a pastor, I need to be reminded of that. But there's two things that have the power to change people, which is our desire here. But I'm not one of them. So, so my preaching philosophy here at New Life Burbank, as I, as I come and begin to, to preach here regularly, is going to be this, that, that we will always come together and we will open the word of God together. And it, it won't be about what I have to say or what I think we need to hear. But we will say, thus saith the Lord. We'll say, what does God have to speak to his church today? What encouragement, what hope, what direction, what promise, what command do we have from the Lord our God? 
Because it is God and his word speaking to us that has the power to change lives. It's only God and his word that has the power to reach into someone who does not believe and to take out that heart of stone and to put in a heart of flesh. But it's also the power of God that changes us and grows us in Christ and matures us. Whether we're taking that first step in the Christian life or the thousandth step in the Christian life, it is God and his word that has the power to do this. It's his word that has the power to do more than we could ask or imagine in the life of our church. So, you know, as we're beginning this new phase in the life of our church, as we're beginning to dream some new dreams about what God might be pleased to do here in Los Angeles, here in uh, New Life Burbank, we commit ourselves to this, and, and let's settle on this, that we will always rely solely on the power of the Word of God, the power of God working through the living and active Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow. That is where we look. That is our hope, that God will work through his word to glorify Christ, to lift him up, to grow his kingdom through the power of his word. That's where Haggai leads us to. This is what Haggai does. He comes with the word of the Lord. And so that's a little bit of the context that we need to, to have somewhere in our minds to set the book of Haggai now, to say this, is, this was his context, this was his milieu, this was his situation that he comes into that is not that different from our situation today. There's, there's that timelessness of Haggai that, that he could have been preaching to us today. But now let's look at what he says. What is the word of God that Haggai brings? Verse 2 introduces the central theme of the book and much of the message that Haggai brings. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people say. I don't know how you hear that. When I hear that, I, I immediately think of days when I come home from work and Aubrey looks at me and she says, do you know what your son did today? Right? It's, not, it's not our son, it's not my son. Do you know what your son did today? Suddenly he's only mine. Here's what God says. He's not saying my people say. He's saying these people. God, I don't know who these people are, but these people say the time has not yet come. It's been 15 years. 15 years now since they began this project, and yet they've set it aside because there was a little bit of opposition, and they've never come back to it. I think in the, you know, we read Old Testament, and there's so many dates and numbers and words that, that we think, oh, 15 years, that's not so bad. But think about our own lives. I mean, he's saying, it, you know, it's been since 1998 was the last time there was any spiritual life or activity or, or vivacity in your life. It's been since 1998, nothing's been happening. And you say, time has not yet come. Note the patience of God in this. They say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, he doesn't call it the temple. He calls it the house of the Lord. It is the temple. It's the same building. But he refers to it this way because he's emphasizing to us this, whose house it is. He's saying they're not simply neglecting a building. They're neglecting God through doing this. They're neglecting the Lord. Haggai calls it the house of the Lord to emphasize to them what it is that's being neglected. What it is that's being neglected. See, for them, you know, we think we have a church on every corner and the church building is not that significant. It's the people. It wasn't like that in the Old Testament. There was one temple in Jerusalem that all the people came to. And it was the house of the Lord. It was the one location on all the earth where God had promised 
my presence dwells in a special place right here. And so for them to neglect that is to neglect not simply a building, but to neglect the Lord. See, this is a, this is a spiritual problem that Haggai is addressing. We would miss the point if we thought, okay, this is just a construction issue. And he's saying, why aren't we working hard enough? He's saying this is a spiritual issue, that it is the house of the Lord that is being neglected. This is why I say it's easy for us to read a book like Haggai and to, to get through it and immediately think, well, this is foreign. This doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't have a temple to neglect. But this timelessness, see, this is a hard issue that Haggai is addressing. He's addressing a spiritual problem amidst the people that what they are neglecting is the Lord. Verse 4. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Paneled houses. Again, I don't know what you think about when you think of paneled houses, but, but this last week I just spent three days painting faux wood paneling up in my office here. And so I, I can agree, you know, these people deserve rebuke if they're living in paneled houses, right? Because that was a pain to paint. But that's, that's the faux wood paneling. We, we know the truth here. Real wood paneling is actually quite expensive. And it was especially expensive for them, for these people to get wood paneling in their houses. That wasn't just a trip down to Lowe's. That was a trip to Lebanon, to the cedars of Lebanon, to collect the wood, to build the house. Later, God will actually tell them to go to the hills to collect the wood for his house. But what they're doing is they're simply building their own houses. And what it means is, you know, for them, wood paneling, that was a sign of, of quite excessive wealth, that they were willing to go to, to all extremes to feather their own nests, that they were putting work and work and work into this at all costs to have nice houses, and yet it was the Lord's work that was being neglected. So this is why I say that Haggai is a classic, that it's timeless, because this could have been written this week. And I believe the message would be the same. That for so many people, we're willing to go to all lengths to, to build our own lives. We're willing to go to all sorts of extremes to, to feather our nests, to build our comfortable lives. You see, Haggai is talking to people who are pursuing the American dream. They're looking for nice houses, 2.5 kids, three-car garage, three-camel garage that they could park in. And they're building their own little kingdoms, and yet 15 years have gone by of pursuing their own comfort. And, and they're not yet giving any thought to the work of God. And, and they're still saying, the time hasn't come for that yet. Maybe we'll get there eventually, but the time hasn't come for the work of the Lord yet. It's been 15 years. Now, of course, we remember, wealth is not a bad thing in itself. That they are building expensive houses is, is no sign of sin. We know the Bible does not condemn wealth. In fact, many of the righteous people in the scriptures are quite wealthy. We remember that the scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil. A commonly misquoted verse, we often hear people say that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. But we remember Jesus' words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God is calling them out here through Haggai, saying that their treasure and their heart are only in themselves and not in loving God and pursuing the Lord. And so he says this in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. This is one of five times in 38 verses that Haggai will say to them, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Just like sometimes we send a child to their room and tell him to consider his ways to think about what he's done for a little while. So here the Lord is sending his people to their room. 
Consider your ways. Think about what you have done. And the first thing that they're to consider, I want to point to two things here, but the first thing that he says that they are to consider is to consider why things are going so poorly for them. They've devoted so much time, so much energy, so much money to themselves working for their own cause, and yet the truth is, he says, it's not going well. It's not going well. Look at verse 6. You've sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And so we get this picture of what life is like for them, this frustration that they're facing. And I think the natural human response when things are going poorly like that is to ask why. And why is this happening? Why, Lord? And verse 9, he actually answers the question. Verse 9 says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. So he actually helps them out. He asks the question, why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And so the Lord answers their question very directly and very discreetly for them. He says, this is the reason, because you've been neglecting the things of God. Fifteen years, you've been pursuing your own ends, pursuing your own dreams, and the things of God are being neglected. And so God says he is putting them under his loving covenant discipline. His loving covenant discipline. In his wisdom and in his sovereignty, what God is doing is he's building a hedge of thorns to spoil their plans. He's putting that in their way so they cannot go the way they want to go. They look for 50 vats, it comes to 20. They sow much and they harvest little. He's frustrating them and foiling their plans. And what the scriptures say in Hebrews 12 is that when God loves you, sometimes he disciplines you. That's not a sign that he hates you. The scripture says that's actually a sign that God loves you because he's treating you as his child. And what parent is there that does not discipline their children? What God is saying here is he's putting his people under his loving covenant discipline. And again, let me give a pastoral word of warning here because it's easy to misunderstand this. We don't ever want to work backwards. What God has done here is he sent a prophet to tell them this is what's happening. But we need to be careful about working backwards. We don't ever want to look at, my, at our lives and say, well, things are going poorly for me. God must be putting me under his discipline. Suffering is much more complicated than that, and, and, and it's, it's dangerous for us to go that direction from our lives to therefore making decisions about what God is up to in the world. It's much more complex. We know we see Job in the scriptures. He suffers. Why does he suffer? Because of how sinful he is? No, because of how righteous he was. And so we need to be careful when we look at our lives, therefore deciding what God thinks about it. But this is what Haggai says. He says, this is what God is up to. He says, you've been neglecting the work of the Lord, and therefore God is, is graciously foiling your plans to draw you back to himself, to get your attention, and to bring you back into his care. Now, there's a bigger, that's the first thing that he wants them to consider. There's a second thing, a bigger context in which they're to consider their ways. I think it's like God is saying to them here, I want you to think about who you are, where you are, who I am, what I have done for you, and what the appropriate response is. How ought you to be living now in light of who I am, in light of what I've done for you? Because what God has done for them 15 years prior was to rescue them from slavery. They were exiles, slaves in a foreign land, and he rescued them. He redeemed them. He saved them. He brought them out. 
into their own land, setting them free, a pure act of his grace, redeeming his people, restoring them, forgiving them. Remember, exile was punishment for for sins, and so he's forgiving that and bringing them back to the land. And in ignoring now the work of God, he's saying, listen, you really haven't understood my grace at all. You really haven't understood the redemption that I have effected for you in bringing you back into this land. This is a picture of salvation. What, what the Old Testament is painting for us here is this picture. People freed from their slavery, redeemed, restored, and saved. And now how ought they to be responding to the grace of God? We see in, in Isaiah 45, he actually tries to, to bring this out and make this clear for us because it talks about Cyrus. Remember the Persian king who allowed them to go back? It talks about Cyrus. Isaiah predicted that Cyrus would do this. And he calls Cyrus the Lord's anointed. The word in Hebrew is Messiah. Cyrus was a picture of the Messiah who would come to free God's people, to set them free from their slavery. He was a shadow and a picture of a much greater Messiah who would come at a greater time to free them from a greater enemy with a greater salvation. You see, we have just now, we've just finished spending four weeks talking about the gospel, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sanctification. We've been talking about the gospel and focusing specifically on, on what God has done for us in saving us from our sins and restoring us and redeeming us. And so it seems appropriate now to, to, as Haggai says, to consider our ways in light of that, in light of who God is, in light of what he has done for us, What's a proper response on our part? What's a proper way for us to respond to the grace of God? To consider our ways and say, am I putting all of my energy only into my own kingdom? Or do I respond to the grace of God by by loving the Lord my God with all of my heart and serving him as he has served me? The message of Haggai is just as timely for us today as it was in 520 B.C., to to consider our ways and to ask, in light of what God has done for us, are we responding appropriately? Have we responded to the Lord by, by turning to him, by working for him and seeking first his kingdom? Or are we still seeking first our kingdom? Are our priorities shaped now by profound gratitude to God for what he's done for us? As we reflect on who he is and the grace he's poured out for us through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and delivering us from our slavery to sin, do we now seek first his kingdom? This is the call for us as a church to consider our ways, to consider our priorities. Can we pray together as a church? Father, this morning we want to come humbly and and to tell you that we love you and to to thank you and to praise you and to worship you for all that you've done. We want to consider your ways. We want to consider what Christ has accomplished for us, bringing us out from slavery, redeeming us and saving us. And ask, Father, that you will continue to draw our hearts to yourself. Father, our eyes are so often focused on ourselves. Will you draw them to Christ? Will you continue to renew us? Will you lead us in the way everlasting? Will you give us hearts that that value what you value and treasure what you treasure? Father, we ask this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.